every healthcare entrepreneur knows that billing is like the bane of their existence. It's, it's getting money. And they found that very quickly that insurance companies have like all these obscure rules and all that. And ultimately Todd brought in his brother, Ed, um, to code something because they were just so desperate to fix their billing problems. And then as soon as they fixed it for themselves and they, they told their, uh, you know, other OB clinics about it and they were like, please, can we get your software? Cause we, we desperately need this too. And that's, that's ultimately the like sort of origin story for Athena health, uh, was, you know, they, they went in thinking one thing and then they found out that like the money problems, all of, all of the billing on the back end were the real problems that everyone was, uh, was suffering from. And then they built this, uh, you know, very successful business, uh, out of that. Now, um, that tells me that money has a lot to do with, uh, with sort of the We are not telling you to quit your job. Here at Off The Clock, the Healthcare Entrepreneurs Podcast, we are teaching you exactly how to gain your freedom as a healthcare professional in places that school never taught you. This is OTC University and class is in session. And we are live. Welcome to another edition of Off the Clock, the Healthcare Entrepreneurs Podcast. As always, I am the captivating, motivating, titillating, and I got my main man, Mr. Paul O'Chain. Paul, say what's up to the people. What up? Hey, y'all thought I was going to play a song behind my name today, but I didn't. It's okay. It's all right, though, but I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. What up? What up? What up? All right. So without further ado, you guys know every week is about being able to bring you special guests that help your business help your brand really help your life and uh this week is a first for us never had anyone in this field before very excited to to talk all things bitcoin we have a bitcoin developer educator entrepreneur open source contributor to many different bitcoin projects uh, is the author of Programming Bitcoin, The Little Bitcoin Book, and Thank God for Bitcoin. <laughs> he writes a weekly newsletter, Bitcoin Tech Talk, and has a podcast called Bitcoin Fixes This. Without further ado, let's go ahead and introduce the legend, Mr. Jimmy Song. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us. How you feeling, man? I am feeling awesome. What with that kind of introduction, how could I not? Right, like that—that that was awesome. Yeah, I, I'm glad to be here. Uh, excited to maybe talk about some of the crossover between healthcare entrepreneurship and Bitcoin. Let's get going. Absolutely, let's do it. So, Jimmy, right out the gate, we always like to start with why. So, tell us, like, why did you even choose to pursue? I know, I know, you started off like with programming. So, why did you choose to pursue programming, and then? How did that lead you into the world of Bitcoin? Yeah, I, I've always been sort of like uh, attracted to computers from a very early age. So I, I still remember as a nine-year-old, I was begging my dad to get me a computer. I didn't even know what a computer really was, right? I'm, I was a nine-year-old in fourth grade or something. And I, I just kept bugging my dad and saying, hey, can you get me a computer? Because I, I want to play with one of these. And after me bugging him for a long time, he finally took me to Toys R Us and got me the Commodore 16. This was back in the 80s. And um, 
if you guys know some of the computer history, Commodore 64 is the one that had all those games. Commodore 16 actually didn't have very much. And that's the, that's the model I got. Uh, and I started playing with it and I wanted to do different things with it. Uh, my mom found like a local like Saturday afternoon class for kids where they taught you a little bit of programming. Um, I learned it and I tried to do stuff on my own and I managed to figure out how to make something fun, uh, you know, appear on the screen and things like that. Eventually she found like a tutor for me to uh, teach me how to program in basic. That was pretty fun, uh, like fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And eventually um, I took some computer science classes in high school and I really enjoyed uh, doing a lot of that. Of course, I was also really into math and uh, for college, that's what I majored in and I didn't code for four years. Uh, but one of my high school friends actually did a startup right out of college and he asked me to join him because he remembered that I was a coder back in high school. So based on that, I decided to join his company. This was back in the late 90s uh, during the dot-com boom. So you can imagine how crazy that era was. Uh, so I joined his company and I started programming for a living. Um, and that uh, that has led me down many uh, roads, uh, mostly in the startup world. Um, and eventually that led me to read a story in 2011, almost exactly 10 years ago, uh, on Slashdot where it said, Bitcoin has reached dollar parity. And I didn't know what that could possibly mean because... You know, I mean, with a title like that, I'm like, well, what what does it mean to reach dollar parity or whatever? Uh, and, you know, I read into it and I found out what Bitcoin was, that it's a digital currency, that it had a 21 million limit. And almost immediately I was like, OK, I need to get some of this, you know, before it gets popular or whatever. Of course, I it, it was really annoying to go and get Bitcoin at that time. So I didn't. One of the biggest regrets of my life because I could have gotten Bitcoin at one dollar. Uh, but eventually, uh, you know, I did get some and in 2013, you know, I, I became much more interested largely because the price was going up uh, earlier in that year, it went up to $266 and later that year it went to 1011 uh, or $1,100 on Mt. Gox and based on that, um, I, uh, you know, I, I got into, uh, contributing to some open source projects. There was a, guy in the Ukraine that was uh, paying people to contribute to his open source project, which is kind of not in the spirit of open source, but I wanted to get paid in Bitcoin. So uh, I ended up doing that and he paid me in Bitcoin, um, you know, from the Ukraine and I'm here in Austin. And that, that was to this day, probably some of the best per hour rate I've ever made, because of course he was paying me in Bitcoin and <laughs> now it's like $56,000 per Bitcoin. So uh, yeah, that, that's my story on uh, how I became a programmer and how I got into Bitcoin. I like, you know, how you shared that. That was the best, like, basically return on, <laughs> on your investment. Because, you know, looking back, cause I remember hearing about Bitcoin. Um, and like I mentioned before we started, you know, I'm one of the few people that actually generally doesn't understand what Bitcoin even, you know, really is and how it works. But, you know, I remember thinking back to like when, when it really started picking up steam and a lot of people were like, Bitcoin, this digital currency, this, and, you know, one of those old heads like me, who was just like, I don't get it. If I can't touch it, how does it work? <laughs> right. So just for the people that are listening that 
you know, might be like me a little bit. Let's just start there a little bit just to kind of give it a foundation level before mm-hmm. we go deeper. So just kind of break down what Bitcoin is and how it works, because I know for people like me, I mean, the most digital currency is just what the bank tells me that is allegedly in my bank account. Um, <laughs> and that's about as digital as we get. So just kind of break down what is Bitcoin really? How does it work? And how do people even get it? Yeah. Uh, so the easiest way to describe Bitcoin is digital gold. And um, and we call it digital gold for a reason. Um, traditionally, gold has been what we would call decentralized money. It's, uh, it's money that sort of the market picked, right? Um, and it, you don't need anyone's permission to go dig for gold, for example, if you can produce it using some nuclear fusion or something, then more power to you, right? Like that, that, that's, that would be your prerogative. Uh, if you own any piece of land, you could go dig for gold. Um, you're not likely to find any unless you happen to live over a gold mine. But you know, if you can, you don't need anyone's permission. This is in contrast to what we call centralized currency. So the US dollar, for example, is a centralized currency. So the, uh, the treasury is allowed to print bills, the Federal Reserve is allowed to create uh, money through um, their ledger, uh, which, uh, which is really all us dollars that exist and things like that. But, uh, but you know, if I, if I made a hundred dollar bill, um, I would get arrested by the secret service because I am not authorized to produce U- us dollars. Uh, but the treasury can do that all day long because they are authorized to do so. So, um, centralized versus decentralized is really the key difference uh, that I want to point out is that gold is decentralized, US dollars are centralized. And most uh, all digital currency up until or, um, 2008, when Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin, was centralized digital currency. So I don't know if you remember in the 90s, they had like startups called like Flues and Beans, and they, they were supposed to be the currency of the internet. And uh, it, it would work on the centralized model. All transactions would have to go through them and so on. Um, MasterCard, Visa, Amex, they all sort of operate in a similar way. They are the central conduit by which all uh, these transactions on the internet kind of happen. Now, what makes Bitcoin different is that it's both di- digital and decentralized, which usually blows people's minds because when when they think of decentralized digital things, the mental model that they have is, well, like an MP3 file or something. You can replicate it like with perfect fidelity, infinite times, right? Like it, the, like how can that thing be scarce? How can it do that? Uh, but Satoshi Nakamoto figured out how. And the way it works is basically there's a giant ledger of every past Bitcoin transaction. And that ledger is called the blockchain. And you can go download the entire ledger. It's completely public. And, and the Bitcoin software can check that ledger and make sure that it follows all of the rules, right? Like uh, that no one is overspending their account, for example, right? Like this this would be a typical bank ledger software thing to do is to make sure that no one's overdrawn and things like that. Um, there are also rules as to, you know, how many Bitcoin are coming into the uh, ecosystem at any given moment. Um, and all of that is checked by the software and make, made sure, okay, yeah, the, the this ledger follows the rules. And that's, that's done by anyone running the software can go download the entire blockchain and check all of it. Now, the way in which Bitcoin is decentralized is a little bit tricky to understand. So the analogy that I like to give is uh, similar to gold. Um, so I'm told that if you're a gold miner, you have to process somewhere around 40 tons of dirt and rock in order to find one ounce of gold. So there's a lot of dirt and rock that you have to process 
to get that one ounce. But once you find that one ounce, it's relatively easy to check if that uh, that is actually gold. The process of checking or verifying that it's gold is a lot cheaper than the process of finding that gold. Um, Bitcoin has something similar called proof of work, except instead of dirt and rock, it's lots and lots of numbers. So it is very difficult to find uh, proof of work because you have to process lots and lots of numbers. Uh, but when you do find it, uh, it's very easy to verify and anyone can go and check it. In fact, your, your cell phone can go and uh, find out, uh, uh, check that the um, proof of work is valid. Uh, but actually finding that proof of work takes uh, lots and lots of machines uh, with lots and lots of electricity to figure out. So um, that's that's how ultimately it's decentralized, and uh, you know you don't there's no central authority. You don't need anyone's permission. Uh, you, uh, anyone can go mine uh, for proof of work essentially, um, and that's how new bitcoins come into the market. And that uh, that's how you know Bitcoin has been running for over twelve years now. Um, and as and as a result, uh, you know there there is this fixed limit of 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be. And it, it goes asymptotically to that. Uh, so far, there's been about 18 and a half million of that that's already been mined. So over the next, uh, you know, 100 years or so, there will be another, uh, you know, 2 million uh, that will eventually be mined, most of it more on the front end. Uh, but that that's how essentially it works. It's decentralized, digital and scarce, which means that it has all the convenience of it being digital, um, all the uh, sort of like self-sovereignty of being decentralized and all of the value preservation of something that is absolutely scarce. So Jimmy, with that being said, uh, the question that I have for you, and I think a lot of people have, have been asking this as well, is like, how long do you think it will be before like, not just Bitcoin, but other cryptos as well are under that centralized aspect? Yeah, the other altcoins are centralized. Um, they have a creator, they have a dev team, they they control what's going on. So Ethereum, for example, was created by Vitalik Buterin, and he still calls the shots. If he says, hey, we're going to change the ledger like uh, to what I want, then that's kind of what happens. And in fact, that did happen in 2016. There was an incident called the Dow incident where um, you know, there was a smart contract that wasn't audited very well. And somebody figured out like a loophole in the smart contract to drain it all, uh, of all its money. And he said, you know what, um, I'm going to reverse all of these in the next, uh, you know, version of the software. So, um, that that's very centralized by any definition. And that that's, uh, what every other altcoin besides Bitcoin, um, you know, every other cryptocurrency, if you will, um, suffers from that fatal flaw. And in that way, all of them are very similar to fiat currency or central banks or, um, you know, anything that that's essentially centralized. Bitcoin is the only one that's actually decentralized. And it largely came because Satoshi Nakamoto left the project in 2010. Um, and th that's one of the subtle things that a lot of people don't get is that, because Satoshi left, um, you know, it decentralized the development. There weren't any hard forks or any or backwards incompatible uh, software upgrades and things like that. Uh, so it, it, Bitcoin is actually decentralized and it had almost like an immaculate birth, uh, whereas all of these other ones had a creator, had a foundation, ha have, a, you know, 
essentially a core team that decides what to do. Um, and they are not decentralized. They're completely centralized. And that means that it can be controlled by a government, by regulation, uh, by evil people that might kidnap their families, whatever, right? Like all, all, it's vulnerable to uh, confiscation and corruption and all that, uh, whereas Bitcoin is not. And that's, um, that's how I would uh, put it. So let me ask you a question then, Jimmy, because, you know, I've started to, and you touched on it a little bit, right? The whole process. And again, my understanding of this is like just what I've seen in the, <laughs> in the movies. But you kind of spoke a little bit about the mining of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've seen like, you know, all kind of theatrical examples of like people need to have like storage units of computers working 24-7 just to find this, right? Mm -hmm. um, just from the practicality side of things, because... Bitcoin is clearly not just a dollar anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in the present moment, what is it? 56,400 and something. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you just can't, I mean, unless you got 56 grand, you're not just going to go up and pick up a coin. So what are then some practical ways that people can go about being able to try their best to actually find Bitcoin? Do they need to set up like whole units of computers or is there like a different way to do it? Yeah, so I wouldn't recommend mining. It is very, very difficult. And it's a lot like gold mining, right? You don't you don't go take a shovel to your backyard and start digging, right? Like that's that's not the way you get gold. The way you get gold, if you want gold, is to go buy it. And you get the money, uh, money to buy it by, you know, using your labor for goods and services uh, that the market wants. And then you get that money and then you go buy gold. Um, I would encourage most people to do the same thing. Whatever you happen to be good at, whatever skill... Uh, that you might have that the market finds valuable, go use that uh, to provide a good or service on the market, get paid for it and use that to go buy Bitcoin. Or if you're lucky enough, then get paid for it for in Bitcoin itself. Uh, now, the question that you asked uh, or the thing that you implied just before is that one Bitcoin is $56,000, but you could buy fractions of a Bitcoin. In fact, Bitcoin is divisible down to eight decimal places. So the smallest unit of Bitcoin is one Satoshi, which is worth about one twentieth of a penny. So it's far more divisible than the dollar. You could buy one twentieth of a penny's worth of Bitcoin if you wanted to. Uh, now, most people aren't going to want to, and it's, it's actually even further divisible using something called the layer two solution called Lightning Network. Uh, but regardless, you could buy five bucks worth of Bitcoin on Cash App right now if you wanted to um, by going on Cash App, clicking the Bitcoin logo or um, like there's a little wallet dollar sign logo in the lower right. And then there's there's an option to go buy Bitcoin that way. And you can go buy some Bitcoin. It's 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 really that simple. Uh, but ultimately, um, you know, the people that mine gold are people that are really good at mining gold, right? Like they know all of the processes. They they can get heavy uh, capital equipment that's necessary to dig and they got the trucks and the um, you know, chemicals to process all the dirt and figure out like how to process it very quickly and all that stuff. Um, they happen to be very good at mining. Um, in a similar way, the miners on the Bitcoin network are the people that happen to be really good at managing large, uh, you know, farms of mining machines, right? Um, and a lot of these act like data centers where you you have to cool the uh, machines in a continuous way, make sure you're repairing the machines that uh, break and uh, you know, have access to cheap electricity and 
you know, make sure that regulatorily speaking, that you're not violating any laws. Like these are people that happen to be very good at mining. And it's, it's, it tends to be a fairly low margin business for that reason. Uh, similar with gold mining. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, like if, the price of gold is like $1,600 or something, then the cost of mining one ounce of gold ends up being like $1,550. It's similar with Bitcoin. The, co- uh, the one Bitcoin is worth $56,000. The cost of mining one Bitcoin is going to be like 50000 55000 something like that, depending on you know what uh, rates you can get electricity. So um, generally, and this is one of the subtle things about Bitcoin that's really wonderful, is that because it is difficult and because there's competition, generally most people aren't going to get into the money production business or the mining business. Instead, what you're going to do is what you happen to be good at that the market wants, that other people need. Um, And this is not the case necessarily in the fiat money business. Um, If you think about the last 50 years or so, the best, smartest, uh, most brilliant people in the world that graduate from the top universities, where do they go? They go into investment banking, not because they're so passionate about investment banking, but because that's where all of the money production is happening. Uh, So the fiat equivalent of mining, lots of people go into, because not because they're necessarily good at it, have a passion for it or whatever, but because it pays the best. And it pays the best because they happen to be really close to the money printer. And, uh, And in that way, I think Bitcoin is ultimately really good for society. So my understanding of this, you know, on the back end of it really then comes to this next question, because I know, you know, and I've seen a few restaurants are really even starting to take payment in Bitcoin, which is really mm-hmm. cool. But then my question is like, because I because I know somebody's thinking about this, mm-hmm. right? I know I can actively go um, to the bank mm-hmm. and say, hey, I have this much with you. Mm-hmm. I'd like to get this amount in, in, in cash. Mm-hmm. Right. So how does that work for Bitcoin? Is there a way to like cash out or do you just sell your coin to somebody else who then has the actual like cold hard currency? Yeah. Uh, so that's what's called an exchange and it works like any sort of foreign currency conversion or anything like that. So if you're abroad, for example, and you can't spend U.S. dollars, um, you go to a foreign currency exchange, usually a bank or something like that. And say, all right, I got some dollars. Can you give me some of the local currency? So if you happen to be in Nigeria, you can go and get Naira or something like that. Or if you're in Japan, you go get the yen. But that that's essentially what you're talking about is conversion to the local currency of whatever have, jurisdiction you happen to be in. Now, you can do it peer-to-peer. There are ways to do that uh, with local Bitcoins, HODL, HODL, and some other services. But generally, people use what are called exchanges, and there are exchanges all over the world. Um, multiple ones in most countries. So in the United States, for example, there's uh, Gemini, Itbit, Coinbase, Kraken, um, you know, Cash App uh, is considered an exchange, River, Swan, Level. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a ton of different places where you can go trade your Bitcoin for dollars or your dollars for Bitcoin. And it can go in either direction. Um, and a lot of people use those services to cash out if they need to. Um, generally, though, most people use Bitcoin as a savings vehicle. It happens to be very good at that particular thing. 
um, which is honestly missing uh, from the economy right now. Uh, the, the only two things that are really used as have been used as savings vehicles over the last 50 years have been real estate and stocks. And you can see sort of like the asset inflation on those. Uh, and they're not very accessible. They require, uh, require a lot of research. Um, you know, picking a stock, for instance, is not easy. Picking a property to buy is also not easy. They have tremendous transaction costs. You know about like the commissions on a stock. Um, and of course, if you're buying or selling real estate, that's, uh, you know, six, you know, five to 8%, uh, you know, at any one time uh, that you do that. So there, there's a significant amount of friction around both of those. Um, and, you know, there's a perception of luck because there's a lot of insider info that goes into both of those things. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's all fungible. So the Bitcoin that an Indonesian farmer gets is the same as the uh, Bitcoin that a Silicon Valley insider with the best deal flow gets. And, uh, and you know, you get the same price rise out of those. So there's no real luck involved. It's just you, you go buy it and that's it. And that's, uh, that's what people use Bitcoin for is as a savings vehicle, not necessarily as a spending vehicle, uh, because there's just, you know, I mean, because that's the thing missing in today's economy, basically. Now, Jimmy, I know you have a, <laughs> I know you have a, a, a past history of being within the, the healthcare spectrum. And so, you know, this is the healthcare entrepreneurs podcast. <laughs> so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be doing justice if I didn't make this transition right here. But just mm -hmm. from, just from, you know, your your knowledge of of healthcare, um, with your experience, um, mm -hmm. as well as the way that you know the world is kind of moving in with COVID and everything and all the changes mm -hmm. that we've seen over the last year. How mm -hmm. do you think that Bitcoin can be something that's implemented into the healthcare realm to where mm -hmm. that is maybe the new way of being able to have your deductible right mm -hmm. or just paying your, your your basic insurance premium on a monthly what are your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, uh, I used to work at Athena Health, and that's what you were alluding to. And uh, and of course, um, you know, the the story behind Athena Health was absolutely fascinating to me because, uh, you know, Todd Park and uh, uh, Jonathan Bush. Uh, Jonathan is the cousin to uh, George W. Bush, and they they started the company. And they told me, um, you know, uh, you know, while I was working there, that they they started the company because they wanted to run a bunch of OB clinics, right? Like that, that was their vision is to, you know, make you make sure that, you know, all these women would be able to, you know, have their babies in a safe environment, and they would create the best uh, OB clinics in the uh, in the United States, and they would have a whole bunch of them or whatever. So they bought into the business, they started running them. And the first thing that they encountered were billing problems, right? And every healthcare entrepreneur knows that billing is like the bane of their existence. It's it's getting money. And they found that very quickly that insurance companies have like all these obscure rules and all that. And ultimately, Todd brought in his brother, Ed, um, to code something because they were just so desperate to fix their billing problems. And then as soon as they fixed it for themselves and they, they told their, uh, you know, other OB clinics about it, and they were like, please, can we get your software? Because we, we desperately need this too. And that's, that's ultimately the like sort of origin story for Athena Health uh, was, 
you know, they, they went in thinking one thing and then they found out that like the money problems, all of, all of the billing on the back end were the real problems that everyone was, uh, was suffering from. And then they built this, uh, you know, very successful business, uh, out of that. Now, um, that tells me that money has a lot to do with, uh, with sort of the problems in the, you know, healthcare marketplace today. And how can that be fixed? Well, I don't know if Bitcoin directly fixes any of those things, but I will say that the fiat system probably messes it up way more than it, it should, right? Uh, a large part of uh, you know what's going on is that uh, because of this uh, this uh, you know em employer paying for the health insurance and that in turn like sort of being um, this mis misdirection on the actual billing, right? Like the the patient doesn't actually really pay directly for the care, right? Like a, a procedure can cost like $3,000, but they end up paying like a $50 deductible. So they don't care. Uh, but, you know, the insurance company certainly does. So they, they put the pressure on the doctor and then, um, you know, the, you know, there, there are all these uh, weird mechanisms that exist. So um, I think, first of all, like uh, some sort of like direct payment um, solution instead of this, weird insurance-based system, um, which, uh, you know, I think the uh, the healthcare bill, for example, essentially made it so that it, it entrenched a lot of those insurance care companies. Um, you know, changing that around and, and making it sort of like direct payment uh, will make things a lot more efficient. And we, we've seen this in industries where there isn't this insurance misdirection, right? Like, uh, the cost of LASIK, for example, um, has gone down tremendously over the last 30 years, whereas the cost of an MRI hasn't really, right? Like the, the machines are still really expensive because nothing is optimized for, uh, for cost efficiency. It's all optimized for, you know, here's the newest toy or something like that. And like the, the system isn't set up very well with incentives. And that's, that's the first thing that I would say as sort of like somebody that's been in Bitcoin and knows all of the incentives without, within Bitcoin are very well aligned. Within healthcare, they're not aligned at all. So fixing that to some degree and maybe some direct payment uh, uh, for the healthcare provider would be extremely beneficial. The other thing that I, I found out working at Athena Health is that Insurance does not discriminate uh, between a good doctor and a bad doctor at all. And that is a big problem, right? Because you can have a practitioner that's really good at their job uh, and somebody that's bad at their job, they get paid the same, which is kind of really strange, right? Like in any sort of free market, what you would expect is if they had to get directly paid by the patient or whatever, there's no way, uh, you know, I would pay the same amount to a poor doctor as a good doctor. I would just go to the good doctor all the time. And so would everybody else. Uh, and in fact, like this is, this is the sort of role of prices is to, uh, is to incentivize, uh, incentivize the good doctor to raise prices and the bad doctor to drop their prices. And then, you know, some doctors may be, you know, may, may no longer be in business or whatever and have to stop being doctors because they're really bad at it. Uh, but but that that sort of incentive doesn't really exist in medicine in large part, as I found out, kind of because of the AMA. They 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 keep the supply of doctors more or less strict, you know, based on the exact amount of demand. So they'll they'll like the number of cardiologists in the United States will always be just a little less than 
all of the cardiology demand that exists so that everybody will always have work. And that, that's, that's how they run that thing. Um, so I think a more free market in that regard would probably be extremely beneficial to the healthcare marketplace. Of course, these are more systematic problems. So what, 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 are, some entre what, what are some entrepreneurs supposed to do? I would say direct payment for services and not taking insurance. Uh, if you happen to be very good at your job, maybe the thing to do or, or to enable the people that actually are very good at their jobs um, to, you know, kind of charge what they're worth instead of, you know, like, you know, everyone getting paid the same, more or less. Um, so I, I, I would say that going in that direction, um, I think would have a lot of benefits uh, for people. And it, it could probably make some people a lot of money. Now, does Bitcoin have a role in that? Uh, possibly. I mean, I would say for any business, um, you know, putting your treasuries or, uh, you know, your cash balance into Bitcoin as a savings mechanism is a good idea because, uh, you know, dollars are being expanded at an unsustainable rate and you're going to see inflation, especially in areas like healthcare. Uh, so, um, you know, being able to do that and, you know, have, have some sort of like savings that you can rely on in leaner times or something like that, I think would be a very prudent move for any healthcare entrepreneur. Um, but yeah, I mean, that said, like the, the system's kind of messed up and it's largely because the incentives aren't aligned on the monetary level. And that, that affects sort of the quality of care that every healthcare entrepreneur is able to give. I like that, you know, direct payment method, just because like you did mention, it makes absolutely no sense to have to keep going as some doctor that's not good at their job when you can't go to somebody who does because we don't play with our health. So why on earth would we play with our money like that? Let me ask you a quick question. What would you say just based on your experience in healthcare and then also digital currencies has been your biggest accomplishment and or achievement in your business so far? So I, I started my own business. So this is my own story as an entrepreneur um, back in 2017. And this was uh, the result of um, you know, having worked at some Bitcoin companies and so on. And, um, and I, I recognized that, uh, you know, back in 2013, when I started coding, like the, the documentation for what I wanted to code wasn't very good. Um, the tools for, or the tutorials and things like that wasn't very good. Um, so I made uh, something like a course uh, for developers. Um, and I, I used it at the various companies I was at uh, as a way to teach the, the, my colleagues, like, here's Bitcoin, here's how you do things. And here, 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 here are the steps to learning it. And I did this multiple times. And at a certain point, I was like, okay, you know what, I think other people would pay for this. So um, 2017, I decided to quit my very lucrative job at Paxos. Um, and I decided to go off and do this on my own. And, um, and I, I did these seminars where I would teach programmers all about Bitcoin. And uh, I did this all around the world. I, I, I did it on, I think, uh, five different continents over, over a period of two years. And I, I, I taught something like 600 developers in that span. And many of them are now um, working at pretty much uh, every major Bitcoin company in the world. So I would say that for me, that is uh, what I would 
uh, count as my accomplishment because uh, many of my former students who, you know, to be fair, they, they paid me a lot of money, but uh, I think I gave them a lot of value too. They went on to, you know, uh, go to go on to, you know, contribute a lot to these companies, contribute a lot to the open source projects and, uh, and do a lot of different things that, um, you know, are helpful to Bitcoin and ultimately to civilization. Jimmy, I just want to take a second to uh, do a little transition. So we have a we have a segment on our show and it's our black health segment where we kind of go over some disparities in health with African-Americans or just some some mm -hmm. issues going on. So just real quick, um, what I want to talk about today, guys, is financial stress, right, which is something that can be common among African-Americans and has been linked to higher psychological distress. There is a study that found uh, Racial identity moderates with the association of financial stress and with depressive symptoms. And that financial stress can lead to things such as insomnia, weight gain, depression, and a bunch of other things. So for today, guys, I just want to kind of provide you with a couple tips to help with financial stress. You know, if, if you're not very good at being able to manage your finances, there are a number of apps out there that you can use to help. Uh, Mint is a good one. There's Honeydew, it's a good one for couples. Um, Pocket Guard, and then other little tips, guys, is just take inventory of your finances, making sure that you're budgeting, and find ways to manage your overall stress. So that's our Black Health segment for today. Um, Jimmy, now, just as far, okay, <laughs> I love this. I, I really love that you said this because I think a lot of people need to understand that it's okay to leave your job if mm. you see something bigger for yourself right mm. and and you said you know hey i left a very lucrative job mm -hmm. to step out on my own now with that being said what would you say like describe to us the the top three skills that you had to master before you started to profit in your business yeah. Uh, so like, uh, first of all, like, uh, it took me a while to get up that gumption, right? Like, and, and it's, it's that, that, that's kind of a process that's quite underrated. And, um, it's kind of, uh, half giving yourself permission and half getting up the courage to go and try it, uh, because you might fail and that, that failure is very much a possibility. Um, but, you know, sort of coming to terms with that, possibility of failure is in a sense kind of freeing if you go okay what is the absolute worst case scenario that could happen i could fall flat on my face no one uh comes to any of my classes and you know i i have to go find another job in three months something like that you know i could live with that right <laughs> like if that's the worst case scenario uh then it's like okay well you know i could deal with that i i've, I've dealt with worse and that that's not terrible right uh, so that that ultimately kind of convinced me to go try it. Uh, but the the skills I would say are, um, I had at that time built up a Twitter following. Um, it's it's bigger now, but back then I think I had finally hit about ten thousand followers, and that was sort of a marketing channel that I didn't realize was a marketing channel. So I started uh, using that as a way to promote my seminars and. That, that helped drive a lot of sales. So I would say the first thing that you need to know as an entrepreneur is sales and marketing, right? And this is something that I, 
this is the advice that I give to different startups uh, whenever I do any advising. You need to have somebody that's competent in whatever it is that you do. Um, you know, usually I uh, advise software uh, startups. So it's like, you gotta have a good technical person. Um, and you have to know, you have to have somebody that knows sales and marketing. Now it could be the same person, but you, you, you have to have some way of selling your product. Otherwise, like no one's gonna hear about it and it, you're kind of gonna fall on your face. You need some way to let people know about it. Uh, now that could be word of mouth uh, because you've done such a fantastic job. And if your clients happen to have a lot of uh, friends that you, uh, they can recommend you to, that's great. Um, but oftentimes they don't. So you know you you have to you have to keep that in mind. So sales and marketing number one, um, two. You have to have like a, a, I think like almost an obsession with providing value to your customers. Um, and that, that was for me, like a big thing is making sure that all of my students got a lot of value out of it. Um, and that was, you know, I, I, I sent them home with like a book, um, you know, a cheat sheet for various Bitcoin things and making sure that they, um, had a good grasp of, uh, you know, like, uh, what, what's going on. And I, I gave them my contact info and told them, Hey, anytime you need to, contact me. Um, you know, I know a lot of people in the industry, if you need contacts or whatever, just ask, right? Like that. I wanted it to be uh, sort of like a continuous relationship going forward uh, so that they would get a lot of value out of it. And, and they did pay me a lot of money, right? Each and each student paid me a bunch of money. So I was like, I, I need to make sure that they are getting sufficient value. Um, and that, that was one of the more unintuitive things I think as an entrepreneur is that oftentimes if you charge too little, um, people treat it like it's worth little. Um, but if you charge a lot, they treat it like it's worth a lot. So in, in a way, you get better customers if you charge more than you would if you charge less, which is completely unintuitive, but there's something that I found out. Um, because I charged a lot of money, they were all serious about it. Um, you know, they, they all like were paying attention in class. Like I, I've never seen like any class that I took in high school or college where the students were that much, that engaged. And it was because they were paying me directly, right? Like this going back to the direct payment, payment thing again, they were paying me directly. And because of that, they, they knew that they, they needed to extract that much value from it. And, you know, some of them, you know, they had their companies pay for it or whatever, uh, but others, especially if they were paying for it on their own with, with their Bitcoin, um, I charged my classes in Bitcoin, by the way. So, um, you know, that, that, that's how they would pay me. Um, you know, they, they knew they had to get a lot out of it. So they, they paid attention a lot more. They were, uh, you know, cognizant. They, they asked a lot of questions and all, all of this stuff. Um, so providing that uh, super valuable experience uh, became sort of an obsession. I, I sent out like surveys after the class and asked them for feedback. Um, I, I put it, I, I made an alumni group on Telegram where, you know, we can discuss various things. And, uh, you know, like a, a lot of my students went on to become like CTOs of Bitcoin startups, for example, and they would be like, hey, anyone you know, like available in this area of the world, um, you know, if you want to join my startup, please, please, um, you know, um, you know, contact me or whatever. And th there, there was a lot of that that was uh, that was going on that I think they got value out of. So that that would be the other thing is making sure that they get uh, your customers get a tremendous amount of value. Um, uh, well, uh, along with, you know, have some sort of marketing or sales channel. Otherwise, you're, you're not going to get anybody. The question I have, and I think 
there's a part of me that is starting to ask myself this question. And so I think it's gonna really apply. But um, I often wonder if people like purchase Bitcoin with the assumption that certain things are gonna cause it to go up, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, or maybe they're like, you know, other people buy, sell, buy, sell, whatever, and then I'll just hold mine because that's the thing to do, whatever. And is that, is that a case? Is that the case? That's the first question. Um, you know, I don't want to call it like idiocy or like, just like making decisions about digital currency, just because it's the cool thing to do. Um, and then the second question becomes then what would you say is like the biggest misconception about Bitcoin or about the industry in digital currency? Yeah, so two very good questions. And I'll answer the second one and relate it back to the first. Uh, the biggest misconception about Bitcoin is that it is primarily a technology and not a money. So uh, a lot of people that look at Bitcoin look at it through the lens of uh, new technology. Uh, so the, a lot of Silicon Valley investors are guilty of this. And they go, okay, well, you know, uh, whoever makes the best mousetrap is the one that's going to win. And that's not how it works with money. Um, so they think, okay, well, this, this other coin has this new feature, this other coin has this other feature or whatever, and they go chasing after those. Um, you know, like all coins have been around since 2011. It's, it, we got 10 years of history. They, they, they don't replace Bitcoin at all. Like uh, you can have faster blocks or a bigger block size or whatever. None, none of that really matters. Um, and uh, sort of looking at it through the lens of technology, uh, it's easy to make that mistake. But if you look at it through the lens of money, the most important thing for money is actually credible long-term scarcity. And that means that, uh, you know, the money that you have now is going to hold its value later, right? And this is why people value gold so much, because they knew that gold was extremely hard to obtain. And, uh, and for that reason, it would hold its value for a long time. And it, it, it kind of has over the last 6,000 years or so. I think uh, even 6,000 years ago, uh, about an ounce of gold traded for about a cow. And that's roughly the case today, which is kind of a remarkable thing. Anyway, um, so that would be the biggest misconception that it's a, it's a technology and not a money. Now, uh, now, why does it go up? All right. Like, uh, are people sort of storing it up because uh, they expect it to go up? And I would say, yes, they are expecting it to go up. Uh, for a uh, monetary reason, right? And this, this is Bitcoin's, uh, you know, perfect scarcity, which comes into this, which is that Bitcoin is perfectly scarce. There will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. That means that you have some assurance of its scarcity. You get this long term, and it's been the same way for 12 years of Bitcoin's existence, which means that it has some pretty good credibility. Uh, a coin that was created last week does not have that credibility because it hasn't been, uh, it hasn't existed that long and who knows how centralized it is and so on. Um, so 12 years of history is pretty good. Uh, and in fact, the US dollar, uh, at least uh, as, a, as completely unbacked by gold is only 50 years old. So 50, 12 and, you know, Bitcoin's traded on a 24-7 basis during those 12 years, whereas, you know, the US dollar, at least in foreign exchange markets has, uh, you know, traded for, you know, eight, 12 hours a day for six days a week, something like that. So, you know, on, on a trading time scale, it's probably, uh, you know, pretty close to the age of uh, the US dollar. 
So, uh, but ultimately, the the thing that gives Bitcoin that um, that value is, is that like extremely credible long term scarcity, and that means that that you can trust it more. And there there's something called the stock to flow model. Uh, well, before I get into that, because of the fixed supply essentially and increasing demand as you know, more and more people trust it and trusting it is sort of like a network effect where if I trust it, uh, then you might trust it because I trust it, or I might trust it because, uh, because, you know, if if, worst comes to worst, I can at least sell it to you, something like that. Um, you know, there, there's this, uh, there, there's this network effect that happens where demand increases and increasing demand on a fixed supply, just from a monitor, from any sort of economics standpoint, if you have a fixed supply and increasing demand, like the only sort of relief uh, for that is price going up. And that, that is ultimately what's kind of happened. And there's a, a great model that, uh, that um, a guy named Plan B on Twitter has made. And basically, he, he maps out something called the stock to flow model. And uh, that's based on how much new supply enters each year uh, versus the current stock that exists. And the higher the stock to flow, um, uh, generally, the better the asset holds value. So big, uh, uh, gold has a stock to flow of about 50. So that means that in any given year, uh, the new supply of gold coming in is about 2% of all of the supply of gold that already exists. Um, and that, that's, that's uh, you know, the increase in supply every year. Um, the stock to flow for silver, on the other hand, is something like 3 or, uh, or which is, which means that you know one third of the entire world supply of silver gets mined every year. This is also partly why you know silver fluctuates in value so much because you know it's essentially being de- demonetized. Uh, you know other other stuff like platinum is like one and stuff. Uh, so you know they they it, it's harder for those to um, necessarily uh, you know hold value. So. With Bitcoin, um, you know, because of its supply schedule, currently, uh, you know, the stock to flow is at about 50, um, you know, and every four years, the stock to flow ratio uh, goes, uh, you know, goes higher and higher. So based on that, he's made this pricing model uh, based on, uh, you know, Bitcoin scarcity, essentially. Um, And it's followed that trend fairly well. And according to that model, Bitcoin will hit about a quarter million by the end of the year, something like that. I, I'm not saying this is not financial advice, but that, that's, the, that's the sort of pricing model that a lot of people do subscribe to, um, including people like Michael Saylor, who bought you know, $450 million worth of uh, Bitcoin for his corporate treasuries because he thought the dollar was essentially a melting ice cube. Um, there are lots of other investment companies that have put that put out their thesis on Bitcoin. And a lot of it is uh, taking that model into account, or at least uh, the logic of that model, which is essentially that scarcity, it's, it's really, really scarce. And that scarcity isn't going to produce more of it. And that happens with every other commodity and known to man is that if there's, uh, you know, uh, a lot of demand for it, more people produce it, this isn't true of Bitcoin. So uh, based on that, um, you know, they're, they're investing and they expect the price to go up. Now, Jimmy, I, I have two more questions for you. And mm-hmm. um, 
you know, I'm, I'm really interested on this first one, just because you, <laughs> you got back in in 2013, right? Mm. Um, there's a lot of people who still haven't gotten in, you know, or, or that are just now getting on the train. So you saw this happening before a lot of other people did. And so the question that I have for you is, um, what other income streams are you interested in getting involved in or are you currently looking at? And then uh, the second question, which is more so to, to plug your resources, is like, what resources would you recommend for someone who's interested in getting started in learning about Bitcoin and investing? Income streams are a, a trickier thing because I, I think that's more of an entrepreneurial endeavor. And, um, and I'm always looking at different um, you know, needs in the market, see if I, if I happen to have the skills or talents to fulfill them. And if I can solve people's problems um, and get paid for it, then yeah, by all means, I, I, I'll consider them. Um, my talents happen to be in coding um, and you know, doing Bitcoin related stuff. So you know, um, I, I have income streams in, uh, in all sorts of areas, right? I publish books, so I get royalties from those. Um, you know, I, I, I'm an expert witness in, uh, you know, court cases that involve Bitcoin. I, um, I'm an advisor to various Bitcoin companies. I do some consulting on the side when people, when like hedge funds might have questions about Bitcoin or whatever. Um, so that happens to be my hustle. And, uh, and, you know, it, um, that, that, that's very specific to me though. So I, I don't know if that, that necessarily helps your audience, but yeah, I mean, I think the general principle applies, which is, you know, go, go f look at various things in the market. And if there's a need, um, then go fulfill it. You know, I, uh, for a while there, I was making money, um, you know, doing carnivory dinners, right. Uh, you know, where, where I would, uh, have uh, you know steak dinners with a bunch of uh, Bitcoiners in various parts of the world, and you know we would charge money for tickets, and then we would have to pay out the restaurant and whatever the gap was, I would make money. And you know, I mean, it didn't make that much money, uh, but it was it was kind of fun, and I got to eat lots of steak, so I, w I wasn't uh, you know sad about that. So uh, you know, it, it really depends, right? Um, on what the market wants and like uh, uh, up to your imagination, if you will. Um, and what was the other question? Uh, the, the last question was, I'm sorry, I just, I just got one more as I thought of that. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> Let me change that. Actually, uh -huh. what are your thoughts? <laughs> what are your thoughts on Dogecoin? And <laughs> how do you feel about like the, the hype around that, the hype around, um, you know, some of the, the other coins that are out there. Um, do you think Ethereum will, will ever get to the level of Bitcoin? What are your thoughts on those? Yeah, uh, Dogecoin uh, was created as a joke, I think, back in like 2014, 2015 uh, by this guy, Jackson Palmer, who I think is, um, you know, identifies himself as a socialist. So um, he actually like was creating it to prove like a point that, you know, like anything can become popular or whatever, and that uh, money is meaningless or something to that effect. Um, and it, it's been a joke currency ever since. And it's sort of like the go-to currency if you're trying to be known as not serious. And I, I believe Elon Musk has been using that to great effect because he loves to troll on Twitter and Dogecoin is an excellent way to troll people. It's, it's, he's not being serious. 
guys. Like that's that's the idea. And now, as far as altcoins versus Bitcoin, um, you can you can just go look at the charts, right? Like, um, look at any coin from 2017 and look at their performance versus Bitcoin, and you will almost always see that they have done horribly against Bitcoin. So Ethereum, for example, I think topped out at. 0.15 or something like that bitcoin um currently it's at like um 0.04 or something to that effect or 0.03 um so it's uh you know it's dropped like 80 percent in bitcoin terms right um and and it's for good reason like all of these guys um know that bitcoin is the store of value savings vehicle so ultimately that that that's what it's useful for for Ethereum, the use case isn't entirely clear. I mean, I, I, I tell people like, you know, if you're investing in Ethereum, essentially you're investing in, you know, new coins being created on their platform, which I guess could be okay. But like Bitcoin is, has historically performed way better than uh, against Ethereum. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, is it better than fiat? I think you can make that argument, right? Like it's probably better than the dollar. Uh, but uh, ultimately, like the entire cryptocurrency space basically follows Bitcoin, right? Like when Bitcoin goes up, they go up. When Bitcoin goes down, they go down and they perform worse than Bitcoin. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't really see a good argument for uh, altcoins because if you want exposure to the space, you should be buying Bitcoin. Um, and buying altcoins in addition to that doesn't add anything. It doesn't stabilize your portfolio. It doesn't add gains to your portfolio. So why buy it? Um, and this is, of, of course, over the long term. If you're a short term trader and you know like different market signals and you're very disciplined and can keep your emotions out of it and you know have studied like various trading things for like the last 10 years, then you know, be my guest. Go, go to town and figure out how to trade these for profit. Uh, but like way too many people get in thinking, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll just put a little here and a little there. And then, you know, they get wrecked on everything except Bitcoin. And it's like, uh, I, like it, it's, you know, it, you like Bitcoin has done tremendously well. Like over the last 10 years, the average annual return is 200%. If you're like trying to like beat that, like, I don't know what to tell you. Are, are you really that greedy, right? Like that you, you need the extra 20% that an altcoin potentially gives you for a particular year, or like the extra 7% you might get through like lending it out and this, what, what, this, that, or the other, like be happy with your 200%. What, what, what is, what is wrong with you? Right? Like, like that's a, that's a, a tremendous return by any stretch of the imagination. If you're trying to like, get more than that if you're that greedy and you're willing to risk all of it well i mean maybe you got what you what's coming to you but i i would suggest that like 200% per year is awesome and you should just keep it that way i love it i love it i love it i love it you know um especially that last piece you just talked about man stop y'all stop being greedy stop setting yourself up to look goofy and fail by losing everything just because you didn't know when to call it quits and the unfortunate part too is i unfortunately you know one of my buddies um was one of those guys who got a little too greedy and then lost almost everything um just by making one bad call out of greed so that's all too real all all too close to home but hey Listen, that's why we're able to learn what we're learning today. You know what all else? What else is great? To the listeners, listen, 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 listen. You already know what I'm about to talk about. It's t-shirt time. 
Um, and what we like to do at T-shirt time is give you the chance to purchase one. That's absolutely right. You too can get your OTC shirt. I have the gray one on. Carl has a white one on. We have the black one. And remember, I keep telling you about the red ones. They're going to just stop coming out. To, today's not the day, but it's coming soon, right? If you want to get your shirt, text word shirt to 321-384-6275. Again, that number is 321-384-6275, as well as text study guide. Study guide to 321-384-6275. We went ahead and we took some notes for y'all. I know you guys are listening. I know you guys are confused. I know you guys are just wondering, like, oh, my gosh, I need to get into Bitcoin, but I don't know what to do. Listen, we get it. It was a lot of information. That's why we took the notes for you. But to get the notes so you don't get confused, the word study guide, 321-384-6275. Yes, sir. Appreciate that, Paul. And uh, Jimmy, man, appreciate you. That was that was awesome. That was just what we needed. Um, I think a lot of people are, are misinformed on, on Bitcoin and... Um, you know, you don't know what you don't know as well. So, you know, that's why we thought it would be great to bring you on the show, man. And I think you really provided a lot of value as, as far as that goes. And um, just thank you, you know, thank you for, you know, the connection and, and, and donating your time so that we can make this happen. And for anyone who's listening, and this is their first time being exposed to you, what would be some contact info or some social media info that you would want to leave with them? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Jimmy Song. Uh, I'm on Clubhouse, Jimmy Song BTC. There's a lot of different Bitcoin clubs there uh, that that I tend to speak at. Um, uh, Black Bitcoin billionaires. There's the Cafe Bitcoin and uh, uh, you know Mastering Bitcoin clubs. Um, I also have a couple clubs there, um, the Bitcoin veterans and uh, thank God for Bitcoin. So a uh, lot, lot of uh, clubhouse stuff. Uh, if you want to like just sort of hang out and learn from people that know about Bitcoin and you need your questions answered, that's like sort of the place to go nowadays. Um, I, I also have the uh, the newsletter, jimmysong.substack.com. That's more of a technical newsletter for all you programmers out there that want to know what's going on in Bitcoin these days. And, uh, and I cover all of it. Uh, there's also uh, my books, uh, Programming Bitcoin, that's for uh, programmers, um, if you want to learn the Bitcoin protocol. Um, I, it's published by O'Reilly, and you can find that on Amazon. Um, I have a book for people that don't know much about Bitcoin at all. Uh, it's called The Little Bitcoin Book, and it's a, it's a very quick read, 70-somewhat pages, and it goes into... Uh, you know, why the current system is broken, um, you know, what Bitcoin actually is, why it's so volatile, and, uh, you know, why it matters for human rights all around the world. Um, and finally, the latest book is Thank God for Bitcoin, which is a moral argument for Bitcoin. Um, and this is uh, definitely from a Christian perspective. I wrote it with seven other um, Christian Bitcoiners that I met along on my journey. But it's, uh, it's making the argument that the current fiat-based uh, fiat central bank backed uh, money is uh, is immoral in so many ways has uh, effects um, you know in, in politics and our personal lives even in the church and that Bitcoin is uh, much much better um, and that it fixes a lot of the ills that we see in society today so that those are the three books um, 
and yeah, uh, it's, I, I think that's all of my social media stuff. I, I, I forget sometimes, but yeah, there you go. Perfect. Go hit Jimmy up. Tell him how much you enjoyed this episode. Um, how much you learned about Bitcoin that you did not know before and do me and Paul a favor, go to Apple podcasts, find OTC and scroll all the way down to the very bottom. I want you to hit the five stars and then leave a five-star review for us as well. Just so that other people know the value we're bringing, the value people like Jimmy bring to the podcast. And don't forget to, to share out the episode, subscribe. If this is your first time listening to OTC, welcome to the family. But until next time, peace, many blessings. Thank you for listening to another episode of Off the Clock. Don't be shy to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. See you next episode.